You're listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Dane. I'm here in London with Adrian Bethune here in a London episode of Reach, Teach, Talk. And I am very excited to have you here on this program, Adrian. I'm um, really excited to be here. Thank, thank you. you. I, I met Adrian about a month ago at a conference up in Cambridge. And Adrian, I immediately ordered your book on Amazon, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom. It is a incredible treasure trove of exercises, advice, strategies for primary school, which in the U.S. would be elementary school teachers. And this this material works. And I would even recommend it for teachers at the secondary school level, just as a reminder about um, how the brain works, the connections of emotions and cognition to learning, and also just to be inspired uh, by this incredibly inspiring well, thank you. teacher. So, uh, Adrian, why don't you talk about kind of why are you here? What brought you to this studio right now? Uh, what's your career kind of history? What brought you into teaching? And uh, feel free to also celebrate kind of what you're doing outside of the classroom as well, because all of that's very exciting. Yeah, so it's 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 been a long journey. Um, it probably started in, in terms of my journey into teaching back in 2008. Um, I, I worked not too far from where this studio is. So I worked on Burner Street, which is... Uh, in the West End uh, of London, I worked in music publishing, um, and I had a I had a well paid job. It was fairly interesting. I had a, a girlfriend. I had a good social life, and then um, things unexpectedly started to kind of unravel for me. I I got on the property ladder at, at the time of the world financial crisis, and uh, suddenly I just felt this huge burden and weight on my shoulder like I have this mortgage and you know everything that's happening around me will I lose my job and I started to feel anxious and I'd always been quite a happy-go-lucky kind of guy and had periods of you know uh, anxiety and stuff but nothing major whereas this was like an anxiety that wasn't shifting Um, and then that took its toll on my relationship and I ended up breaking up with my girlfriend I had a big fallout with my best friend who lived just around the corner from the flat I was living in. Mm. So I found myself living in this one bedroom flat alone in London. And I just felt acutely lonely. Like seriously, that was, that was the overriding emotion. So yes, there was anxiety there. And, but I just felt incredibly lonely, which I think is, is exacerbated when you live and work in a capital city, really busy cities, all of these people, but you feel disconnected from them all. Uh, essentially and that that period of kind of acute anxiety got worse and it led to a bout of depression I think mainly because I couldn't sleep at night the anxiety was keeping me up and I just I burned myself out and that compounds itself doesn't it if you're not sleeping you're feeling worse during the day when you're awake right and yeah you start... yeah and your perspective goes completely yeah. because of, and things that normally brought me joy like playing football seeing my friends I was I was still going to these things. I was turning up at work, but it was like I was just observing. I was I just didn't feel connected at all. Um, anyway, so that that was like a profoundly difficult period for me. And and during that, I had this. It's not even epiphany. Just just a realization that I was someone that had worked incredibly hard at school uh, during my exams and at university. And I kind of thought to myself during this difficult time I have all of this knowledge all of these qualifications and I literally have no idea how to help myself feel better or get better I was like literally in a rut and I didn't know what to do 
Um, there was no course you took at uni that no, was about exactly. how to you know, lift up. So, so back in 2008, 2009, talking about mental health, happiness, well-being, it really wasn't that common at all. Uh, and I didn't have any shame about how I was feeling. But equally, I didn't, I didn't know who to talk to about it. I didn't know what to talk about. Um, anyway, to, you know, I had a, I had a good group of friends and family around me that were very supportive and that they massively helped me. And, and a chance conversation with a friend said to me, you know, he said, I've seen a counselor. You maybe you should see one. And, and even him opening up to me about that was like, well, I, I didn't know that, you know, you could go and see a counselor and speak to this. So anyway, that, that this started a journey of, um, kind of self-discovery reflection i started to read about the cause of anxiety and depression i discovered that there was a science of well-being and happiness and there was research about what makes us happy and what makes us unhappy and uh, basically i kind of taught myself all of this stuff that um you know in a way i wish i'd learned at school because i, I felt it on reflection it could have really helped me um one of the things i'd read in my research was that the happiest people often give a lot they often mm -hmm. volunteer or they're you know they're giving their time or their money or whatever to other people and so i signed up to a, a mentoring scheme so i volunteered for a year a charity in london called chance uk and i mentored a nine-year-old boy in hackney which is a quite a poor part of, of a borough of london who was at risk of being kicked out of school because he was aggressive and violent and, mm -hmm. and um and i got to know a lovely little boy who anger i guess was a a symptom of his home life he was single parent family his mother had mental health issues his brother was involved in a local gang um and his school weren't really helping him so i i did that for a year at the same time my really good friend from university asked me to be a governor at a local the school that she worked in and those two things being a governor volunteering mentoring just made me reflect and think actually my job it's enjoyable but it's not meaningful and I felt that I, my life was lacking a sense of direction and purpose. So your job at, at this time was still in the music business? Still, yeah, still music industry. Yeah. And being a governor is, uh, for, the, for the folks in the U.S., it's, it's being on a school board. It's being a, a board member of a school. Mm, yeah. And was this a primary school? Like primary school, yeah. I was chair of the finance committee. So I was using my kind of music industry Excellent. financial <laughs> knowledge to help the school. Um, but yeah, I was just getting so much out of working with this young boy volunteering at the school and I thought actually this is where I want to spend more time I want to teach children I also want to help the children like the boy I was mentoring with their emotional difficulties help them fit in help them be happy help them be a success because um, I felt his school wasn't doing that for him mm -hmm. so I retrained to be a teacher in 2010 with this bold ambition to to do all of that stuff I've just mentioned, you know, kind of really focus on the stuff that matters in the classroom. And I was very quickly kind of disillusioned because the focus on in UK education had changed massively from when I was at school. And even at primary elementary school, it was all about results. It was about results in English, results in maths. It was about progress, progress. It was about academic attainment. And because of that, there wasn't time to focus on emotional issues of children. There wasn't time to focus on happiness and well-being because that was the curriculum was packed 
with content we had to just get through. And Adrian, this sounds very familiar to what was going on across the pond at the same time, which was the race to the top. Arnie Duncan, Education Secretary under President Obama, um, at the exact same time, it's this idea of race to the top. So if your student test scores are doing well, your school will be ranked higher and you will be at the top. And as state by states started competing against each other for this recognition as being on at the top, but based on quantitative metrics, mm-hmm. um, you know, and as a teacher, teachers were also in the U.S. being assessed on their efficacy based on their student test scores, which seems a bit unfair because as a teacher, you know, actually you don't know who the students are. They're going to come into your classroom every mm-hmm. year and every year they're different. Yeah. And it's not the idea, there's no hero teacher out there who can work magic with any group of kids and bring them all up to the top. I mean, mm-hmm. you work with what you get and you meet the kids where they are. So anyhow, it's just interesting to note, this story sounds so familiar to many teachers I've talked with in the U.S. around the same time, this idea of, huh, is really my job to, uh, to, to, to achieve through test scores and through quantitative metrics, or I thought, it was something different. Mm. So anyhow, let's get back to your story. Yeah, yeah. And and that, that was what I was reflecting on the time, this vision I had of how I was going to teach and what I was going to teach and how I was going to help these kids was not marrying up with the reality. And I, I felt disillusioned. Uh, and not only that, because of the relentless pace and pressure of a typical teaching day, I started to feel the anxiety coming back and I started to find it hard to sleep at night and I found it hard to eat my lunch at lunchtime because I had that sickening feeling in my stomach and I actually started to kind of dread going into school most days because I I was teaching in a in a London primary school it was a challenging school um yeah and the reality of going from mentoring one child one-to-one to having 30 children was was a massive learning curve for me the difference was in terms of that feelings of anxiety was that so by this stage two years later I was in a new relationship what I had learned as part of that previous difficult time I spotted the signs really early I could recognize that I wasn't sleeping well that I couldn't eat whereas before I might have just ignored it and put it to the the back I I spoke to my girlfriend about it and I was open with her about how I was feeling so just talking which was something I hadn't done you know, a couple of years before. And also I just made some subtle changes. I made sure that I was going to bed earlier. I was trying to stay away from stimulants like alcohol and and tea and coffee before bed. So I got a good night's sleep. I was uh, exercising more um, and and that really helped. The other thing that, that happened, and this was kind of, I guess, fortuitous, kind of lucky. Another teacher that was on my teacher training course, I studied at London South Bank University and I was studying at university one day a week, and the other four days I was in the classroom. One of my teacher training buddies, um, when she could hear that I was feeling disillusioned and, and kind of actually angry at the state of UK education, um, she lent me a book, and she said, I think you should read this book. And it was called Teaching Happiness and Wellbeing in Schools by a teacher called Ian Morris, who was a secondary high school teacher um, and basically his book shared a lot of the, the science of well-being, positive psychology, and showed gave some ideas of how to embed it in your school. And although it was aimed at a higher age group, I started to tweak some of the ideas and, and bring some of the, the ideas into my classroom setting. And just that gave me a sense of agency and, and empowerment. 
and and a sense of purpose that actually this is what I got into teaching to do and now I'm actually doing it and although I'm doing it on a small scale it can grow from here um and yeah so then I read more books and I thought actually all these books on ad for adults on positive psychology and, and well-being why can't I bring tailor some of that to my you know six seven year old kids that I'm teaching so I bought in a, a mindfulness meditation practice in the in the morning because I was doing a mindfulness course myself um and over a period of a few years, it just I just started to embed more. I went on more courses. I learned more. I spoke to other teachers. Uh, and then fast forward to 2018. Um, well, actually, it, w- it would have been 2017. I kept Googling well-being in the primary classroom. I was looking for books aimed at primary and elementary schools, and I just couldn't find any that were written by teachers. I could find them written by psychologists. And Why does that matter? Because teachers or people that have spent a lot of time in the classroom know the reality of, of a typical classroom and the the myriad of issues that might come up and and the innumerable amount of, me, uh, of variables. Uh, whereas I think sometimes when you, you know, you might be a mental health expert, a psychologist, and you think, okay, do this in the classroom. And a teacher might think, well, actually, that's not going to work how you've presented it. So, and that was the massive appealing thing about Ian's book. He was, he is still a practicing teacher. So, yeah, I couldn't find a book aimed at primary school teachers. And I thought, sod it, I'll write my own. And <laughs> I started to write just the first few chapters. I wrote the preface, which was just my journey uh, from kind of mental ill health to to um becoming a teacher i um yeah and i mentioned that i was starting to write a book to my best friend who was someone that had really helped me in my difficult time and and i said to him i'm writing this book um i've seen that bloomsbury the publisher have a book proposal form on their website so if you have an idea for a book you can fill it in and you know and he said and again this is lucky he said i know someone that works at bloomsbury I used to work with them at MTV and now they work at Bloomsbury. Um, and it's a connection. Yeah. But, you know, I would still have probably procrastinated and not done anything about it. But literally the next day he emailed her, copied me in and said, my best friend's writing a book on teaching well-being. Are you interested? And she wasn't in editorial. She was in marketing. But she said, look, I know the editors. Can you give me a one paragraph summary of your book? which I did. And they, she came back and said, look, they like it, fill in the document, the proposal and, you know, take it from there. And, and yeah, they liked the book and I've took a year to write it um, pretty much from beginning to end. And yeah, the, the idea is to give teachers the research. Cause I think that's important that the kind of evidence base, like why is this important? And then ideas, practical ideas, like how to bring the research to life in a normal everyday classroom with challenging, normal everyday kids. And you're still teaching now. Yeah. So, so I, you're, you're applying what's in your book to your daily teaching as well. Yeah. And so I teach part time now. So I teach, I was three days a week last year. Now I'm two days a week. Um, I, I have enough because I'm being, since the books come out, I'm being invited to give more talks and, and do training in schools. There's enough work for me to leave teaching completely and do just the, the what we call in England freelance work, uh, the private work. 
but actually one i still enjoy teaching two i part of my mission is still to directly teach these skills to kids uh and three i feel that when i do do my talks and go into other schools i'm talking from a place of experience and authenticity like this is what i do and when someone says but what about and they give me a, a scenario i've got experience of to say well this is how i adapted it for this setting and you know um because what happens a lot in uk schools is that the people that do training don't teach and teachers are sitting there thinking yeah that's probably not going to work in my setting because of xyz it's going from theory to practice yeah. right and the longer you're outside of the classroom the more detached you know your research might be incredibly important and it might be relevant but consulting, working with schools, talking to teachers, if you're not in the classroom, you're not able to, mm. as you said, respond to those nuances or those questions. But what about, what if, yeah, yeah this one kid that's like this. So all of that is, and it's also just a credit to the fact that you're in the classroom still while you're absolutely, you're a really wonderful public speaker and a fantastic consultant. And I think you do work very well with teachers and I hope that continues. Two, two strands of conversation emerged from what you were just sharing, Adrian. Um, one is when I mentioned connection earlier, it's this idea that you, you knew somebody, well, your best friend knew somebody mm -hmm. believed in what you were working on, could see that you were working. This is a very authentic project from you, Adrian, and connected you to this person at Bloomsbury publishing, which ended up publishing your book, this idea of connection, mm -hmm. right? When you think about connection and when you think about connection with kids and you think about your own classroom, or you thinking about what, what does every kid need in terms of connection? in order to flourish, in order to feel senses of well-being. Mm. Um, and as a teacher, sorry, and as a teacher, how do you encourage that? Yeah. Well, I've noticed in your book, first chapter, first section is about connection. In my book, the first chapter is called Creating Tribal Classrooms, which is all about relationships and connection. I, I think primarily what children ultimately need is to be noticed like as in the adult has noticed that they exist they need to be valued as an individual that they have strengths and qualities and attributes to bring to the classroom environment um, and they need a sense of belonging that they are part of some so yes they're an individual but actually they're part of something bigger than just themselves that they are part of a team part of a tribe part of a family um, and those those kind of three things I think really help children feel safe like they need to feel safe that's just like a fundamental because the safety part is important because in order to learn you need children to explore and you need children to be able to take risks because it's through that exploration and that risk taking that yeah actually they'll probably make mistakes as well and that's really valuable learning for them too and if they just stay in their little comfort zones not willing to explore and take risks then your their learning is immediately hampered um and that risk taking takes many forms it can be related to academic learning it can also be in terms of connection like they might have had family experiences where making connections is a, a big risk for them they might have been let down so creating that environment in the classroom where actually it's okay for them to maybe reach out and connect to other students and to reach out and connect to other adults in the school is a safe thing to do that they're going to be yeah valued respected um all of that's massively important and, and research around um attachment theory 
So one of the key proponents of that was a, a psychologist, I guess, called John Bowlby. Um, essentially, in order to be happy, in order to learn, in order to lead a flourishing life, children need uh, secure attachment with an adult. It's, it's typically the mother, primary caregiver. Um, and one way psychologists measure attachment, and, and attachment is often psychologists' technical term for love, um, is by taking a, a one-year-old, separating them from their primary caregiver and putting them in a room with a stranger. Sounds horrible <laughs> when you describe it, but <laughs> essentially what they're trying to measure is their attachment. And typically children fall into one of four categories. Securely attached children will show distress when their caregiver goes, kind of uncertainty with this unfamiliar adult. And then when their familiar adult comes back, they're relieved and they're happy and they carry on as normal. Everything's fine. Um, and that's that's kind of healthy attachment, secure attachment. Then there's uh, avoidant attachment. So that is where uh, the primary caregiver leaves, child doesn't seem that bothered, primary caregiver comes back and the child doesn't seem that bothered. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of avoidant. Mm -hmm. um, then there is disorganized attached, which is the primary caregiver goes and the child shows kind of dysregulated responses so they might spin around in circles they might start tapping on the wall uh, and often it's because they have parents or caregivers that show frightened or frightening behavior so the child doesn't know how to regulate themselves and the the fourth one is um it's gone out of my mind now uh it will come back to me but essentially they are distraught when the caregiver goes and they're still distraught when they come back. They, they, can't, they can't come back to, to a ground level. They can't yes. be regulated, even when the, when the parent comes back. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that. yeah, and I can't remember the exact term, but that, that's, that's okay. the behavior. Yeah. So essentially, our adults will have certain attachment styles because uh, the attachment, attachment styles you develop as a child typically follow you through into adulthood, so it will affect your adult relationships. So our classrooms will have a mixture of kids with all different attachment styles, securely attached, an anxiously attached, avoidantly attached, disorganized attached. And the teachers and, you know, adults in the school will have different attachment styles. But the reason this is really important is because you need to meet your children where they are. So you can't, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm kind of avoidant, ambivalent, attached adult, meaning I kind of, you know, steer clear of those close connected relationships and I've got a kind of anxious child anxiously attached they're going to be quite needy and want my reassurance and if I'm not aware of my attachment style I might find them really annoying and just want to push them away and that's the worst thing you can do to that child whereas if I'm aware that I'm avoidantly attached I can moderate my behavior to respect what I need, but also give that child what they need as well. So reassurance and, and some attention and, you know, um, yeah. So I think attachment styles is really important that teachers are aware of the research behind it, but also practically how you adapt things in a classroom, how you moderate your behavior and you're aware of your own attachment style because that's going to impact how you relate to others. Can we talk about your own attachment style for a second? Not yours necessarily, Adrian, but the, the, the attachment style of the teacher, because in listening to you talk about attachment and the four different varieties, I was thinking about the teachers 
that have levels of attachment to their students that also have a variety of, of um, extremes, mm. right? So you could have on the one hand a teacher who really doesn't care if their students, you know, what they think of them or, or just as long as the students do the work and they turn it in on time and blah, blah, blah. And then you can also have a teacher on the other side, which is, you know, oh, I really care that my students like me and I really care that I'm, you know, connected and that they feel connected to me on a, on a deeper level mm. than most. Where do you, what advice would you give for teachers in terms of how they should look at their own feelings of attachment? And I've always said it's attachment versus engagement. I talk mm. about, you know, it's healthy to have a sense of engagement with your students, but you don't want to necessarily be attached to them because that seems like you're giving of yourself in order to be liked versus mm. respected, blah, blah, blah. Are there any thoughts you have about that? Um, how attachment can be an unhealthy thing in the classroom as well? Yes. Yeah. I guess a, a lot of, you know, these ideas and the research around well-being in particular, it, it, I think it all comes back to this notion of balance. Like there is, there is always, I feel, whatever you're talking about, some middle ground to try and find between unattached, <laughs> overly attached, and then somewhere in the middle that's probably healthy balance. So yeah, I, I guess in terms of unhealthy attachment, at either ends of the extreme, you've got teachers that don't want to make any connection with their students. They just see their job as conveying content for them to learn and that's it that's their job you know they don't care about their children's home lives or their friendship issues they just they're a teacher i'm the expert here's the knowledge learn it practice do your homework see you later right and then at the other extreme uh maybe our teachers um that want and really feel a need to be liked and accepted and yeah, actually might cross some boundaries in order to kind of get that validation from their students. I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I'm thinking about this movie that if you haven't seen it yet, I, I highly recommend it, mm. but it's highly disturbing. Okay. Um, called The Kindergarten Teacher. Right. It came out about a year ago. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays this kindergarten teacher with a family life that has got emotional holes like the size of the Grand Canyon. Mm. And she has this, she's a kindergarten teacher. She has this five-year-old in her classroom, um, reception teacher who she attaches to try to fill this hole in her. Mm. And anyway, it's a really fascinating study of exactly what you're talking about, the overattached teacher mm -hmm. and looking for something more than what is absolutely acceptable mm. um, in the, in the student teacher relationship. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's made me, made me think um, what the conference we were at the relationships foundation conference when um, one of the speakers was talking about kind of behavior and responding to behavior and it kind of links to this and that you know this is this relates to parents as well as as teachers that at either ends of the spectrum you've got permissive kind of parenting teaching which you don't really care do what you want like kids can behave how they want and that's really unhealthy for children like complete lack of boundaries it gets, the, sorry it gets back to what you were saying earlier about balance and yes. how kids need a sense of balance in order to feel safe yeah right yeah, and at the other end of the extreme, you've got authoritarian. So it's kind of do as I say, don't question what I'm saying. These are the rules, just follow them. And that's unhealthy too, because uh, either you get children that really push back and rebel, or you get children that can just completely follow, but they're not learning their own self-regulation. So in the middle, this expert was saying you need authoritative uh, parenting teaching, which is essentially, I'm in charge, but I will respond to your needs. And that's that's that kind of healthy 
balance. And, and I think that's what teachers should be aiming for, which is ultimately I'm in charge because I'm, I am the expert in terms of the subject content, largely. Um, I'm also in charge because I'm here to keep you safe. That is part of my job. Uh, but equally, if you need something from me, I will listen and I will help you as best as I can. And that's that balance and middle ground. And that's, yeah, it, it probably is something you can read in a book, but I think it's also experiential. You just need to be in the classroom and learn. And like, I'm a parent now, I've got two young boys. I'm learning that in the deep end right now. That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard, isn't it? My goodness. And, you know, let me ask you a question about, um, you said earlier, you mentioned just in passing that there, stud there are studies that show that the emotional level of health that you have when you're about 16 impacts your emotional stability or your emotional self as an adult. Can, can you just quickly just explain that study or explain that research? Yeah. So Professor Richard Layard, based at the London School of Economics, carried out a longitudinal study over 40 years worth of data, thousands of participants. They wanted uh, to look at adults that were reporting high levels of life satisfaction. So they were saying, I'm happy and satisfied with my life. Trace them back through the data to their childhood and work out what's the strongest predictor in childhood of adult happiness, adult life satisfaction. The strongest predictor was the child's emotional well-being at the age of 16. And the weakest predictor of adult happiness was the child's intellectual development. So the grades they were getting, how well they were doing at school was not a strong predictor at all of who would grow up to be a, a happy adult. So when we're looking at like productivity measures uh, in, you know, in, in societies and countries, we, sh we should be looking more at, it seems like, the how emotionally healthy are our 16-year-olds mm. because inevitably in the future they will be uh, more productive uh, members of our of our society and of our growth, right? Mm, yeah. As opposed to, let's focus on the GCSE scores. Let's focus on level, you know, whatever, A levels. Let's focus mm. on, I mean, we need that though, right? I mean, you would agree. We need the measurements. We need the data, right? But we yes. also need to, we can't let that supplant. No, I think, I think what's happened is that, again, it comes back to balance. We've gone so far the other way of just like bowing down to the God of data that we've forgotten about well-being, emotional health. Uh, and there is a balance to be struck. You know, I want my children to be happy, well-rounded individuals. I also want them to do well academically because I know grades are important for securing good work and, and getting a good job. And, and by good, I don't mean necessarily well-paid or high status. I mean a job that gives you pleasure and purpose. Um, you need, typically you need good grades for that. But also the grades are a proxy for knowledge like i want my children to be knowledgeable of themselves and the world like which teacher wouldn't want that um yeah i think we've just gone too far though of worshiping data and in that act you know when children become numbers you essentially dehumanize them and i think that's why we have certain problems in the uk education system because we've forgotten that there are individual human beings in classrooms um, and the teachers as well teaching them. We've forgotten about them and their lives and their, you know, I think that's what we, we need to remember more. <laughs> and ironically, that humanness is a primary, if not the primary incentive toward learning that, that, that it promotes engagement. You know, if, if you are allowed to be as a teacher, an authentic adult, the only adult in the room, an authentic presence, somebody who's able to be his own individual there, 
in the classroom that he is running or she, that students tap into that. You know mm-hmm. this, right? Like even at, you know, at the young age, students can sense uh, insincerity. They can mm-hmm. sense somebody who's trying to be something they're not. A very easy mistake that younger teachers or teachers who are newer to the profession make is to try to be perfect, to mm-hmm. try to be like the font of all knowledge. And if I can't make a mistake or else my students will judge me as weak, when really it's the opposite. Like yeah. that, that kind of uh, approach actually promotes distance um, versus a teacher who's like, you know what, I don't, I don't have the answer to that. Maybe we can discover this together as a class. Extra credit tonight for anybody who comes, you know, home and, and figures out the answer mm. and brings it to me. You yeah, know, yeah. Brings tomorrow, blah, 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 right? Yeah. Um, well, and also I think it's important as teachers to show that we are continually learning and, and it's impossible to know everything. So when a student asks me something I don't know, I say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And either, you know, find it out and let me know because I'd fascinated to find that out or I'll have a look as well and let's let's reconvene tomorrow and let's and you've never had a student walk out on your classroom when you said you don't know the answer no <laughs> protesting yeah no. <laughs> Mr. Bethune doesn't know the answer so I'm leaving yeah <laughs> well do you know what's even more uh, kind of funny is when you're doing let's say a, a, a maths equation and you're kind of solving on the board and then you know a child in your class will say Mr. Bethune you've forgotten to carry the tens and like you've completely messed up this example <laughs> Uh, and you know it's important to own those mistakes and just say look i'm 38 years old i've been learning maths my whole life and i still make mistakes and that's okay and like now i that mistake has now meant i will double and triple check every time i do this on the board so there's value in those mistakes and that's important to communicate to kids as well. Because the students, the kids, they are watching all the time. Mm. Uh, Ted and Nancy Sizer are big educational. Uh, Ted has since passed away, but Nancy uh, is is writing and, and researching at, around Harvard and Cambridge, U.S. And uh, they wrote a book together called The Students Are Watching. Mm. And they're always watching. Yeah. And they're not always going to watch for like, oh, I'm so excited to learn about remainders <laughs> or handwriting or cursive. But they are watching you. And yeah. they might not want to be a teacher themselves, but they are watching for how mm. you, as the adult, respond to this, this, and this. And they're not, they can't, they don't have the words to articulate it, certainly, but they are looking for actions that they can emulate mm. and that they respect. There's a quote I, I use in my book, um, comes from a child developmental psychologist called Professor Alison Gopnik. Yes, of course. Who, who is American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, written a book, brilliant book called The Gardener and, and the, Carpenter. the Carpenter. Yeah. And the quote I, I use in my book is that children learn far more from their caregivers' unconscious behaviours than any of their conscious manipulations. And I love that. That just makes me think of teaching. Like I'm here teaching you stuff and this is what I'm consciously trying to get you to do or to learn. But actually my body language, my tone, when you see me in the corridor, you know, when the photocopy is not working and how I respond in that moment, that's what the children are most soaking up. I always talk about the time when like a teacher will interrupt my classroom just as I'm about to teach Odysseus stringing his bow and about Mm -hmm. to slaughter the students and just building up, building up. And then immediately just as he's about to, string, to, to shoot the arrow, the math teacher comes in and says, hey, do you have a dry erase marker? Because mine just ran out. <laughs> like, no, nobody in the classroom cares about Odysseus yeah. or Telemachus or anything at that point. All they care about is how Mr. Damon is going to respond to yeah. that math teacher. And is he going to be graceful? Is he going to be rude? Is he going to be annoyed? Yeah. Does he have a dry erase marker? Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> so you know how it is. Yeah, like, that's yeah. how it is. Um, last topic I and, and we'll briefly talk about now but it's so important because you've mentioned this word several times in this conversation and um it's the word tribe 
Mm. And uh, as an American, uh, the word tribe is, is actually right now, anyway, kind of viewed kind of negatively, all right? And just by society, because, um, you know, which tribe are you in? Which identity do you group do you, um, affinity group do you belong to? Uh, are you Democrat or Republican? Are you liberal or conservative? Are we not blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it's been used as a term that, that talks about division and mm. it talks about building a wall. You tend to be using tribe in a very positive way and in terms of applying it to the classroom. Mm. And I'd just love to hear you talk a bit about how the classroom as a tribe has worked for you and also how it has been able to achieve a um, sense of belonging and uh, a sense of safety for your students and for you in this classroom that you designed. So can you mm. talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So, so this idea of kind of tribal classrooms, which is the first chapter of my book, comes from Professor Louis Cozzolino, another uh, American academic. California. He, he comes from Pepperdine, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, Italian heritage because he talks about it in his book originally. Um, and essentially what he says is that we are, human beings are a, are a tribal species and that for hundreds of thousands of years, we've lived in tribes. And it's only very recently in the last 5,000 years, we've moved to the industrial based societies we live in now. And he, he essentially says that 5,000 years is not enough time in terms of biological evolution to move from the animal that we are, which is a tribal species. And so he, his research and his book is about how you can tap into the what he calls the primitive social instincts of children, which is about needing to belong to a group, to a tribe, because that literally turns on their brains for learning. It makes them feel safe, secure, to happy. It has benefits on their immune system. You know, it, it reduces the amount of cortisol, the stress hormone. It's all, when people feel connected, it, we feel good and we do good. Hmm. So uh, when I first started to bring this research and this idea into my classroom, it was when I was teaching a year two class. So they were six years old and their reception teacher had gone off on stress leave. Their year one teacher had gone off on stress leave. And then I was inheriting this class in year two. And I was starting to panic because they were not a cohesive bunch of children. They were not kind to each other. They were all trying to get one another into trouble. And I remember thinking over the summer holidays, thinking, and I'm going to get this class in a month's time, how can I create this sense of team? We need to work together if we're going to, you know, have a good year, essentially. Um, so I, yeah, I did a lot of work around creating a sense of tribe. I wanted these children to feel like, actually, you are part of a team in this classroom, that at the moment, you know, we're not getting along, but actually we can work on every single day. We can work on what we can do to kind of look out for one another, to cooperate, to learn how to share, to take turns. Um, and so that, that year was my focus, like maths and English were kind of secondary to how can I get these children to work better together, to feel like they belong and connect because there's research out there that shows that a sense of belonging is fundamental to learning. So if I, you know, if I want to teach in English and maths and science and everything else, these children need to feel like they belong. Um, so I, so I did some work around kind of creating a team flag, which was essentially we, we looked at a video of team GB at the Olympics. Um, and we thought about what makes them successful, like attributes, qualities. So things like perseverance, friendship, kindness, effort, teamwork, determination. 
And then I, I gave each child a plain piece of paper and I said, choose the value that means something to you. So he wanted to make it personal to them. Write it in bold on your piece of paper, fill your page with color. And we pieced these 30 separate pieces of paper together and it created this large team flag. So this flag was a mosaic of every one of your 30 students, not only choosing the term that, that they thought of when they watched uh, Team Great Britain GB video, uh, what brings them together, but also it was the way that they designed their um, part of the flag, their mm. section was individualized. Yeah. So the value that they chose and also how they designed it was completely up to them. And so then you have this beautiful tapestry of uh, individual values that together make our team flag. So we became Team Picasso then because <laughs> our, our name was Class Picasso. And it was really about communicating to the children. You might have just created this one small piece of the flag. You might have just chosen the value of love. Uh, but actually, you're, you're part of something bigger than just yourself. You're part of Team Picasso. And that the success of our team relies on all of us working together. Like We can't do this alone individually. If we're going to have a good year, if we're going to learn stuff, if we're going to have fun whilst we're learning, we need to work together. Uh, and it was also about communicating that these values, as part of our team flag, they are a work in progress. Like this idea of perfectionism, we are not the finished product. Like we are working towards showing love. We're working towards being determined. Like we're not the finished product. Um, and you know, by the end of that year with that class, and it was a very difficult year. It wasn't easy. It's not easy creating a sense of team and tribe amongst children that f don't like each other. It's really hard. Um, by the end of that year, I was completely besotted with that class. They were, they are still one of, you know, I know you shouldn't have favorites, but you can't help it. Most um, memorable. <laughs> yeah, most memorable. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to year four after teaching them and I got them back two years later uh, and we made another team flag and the values were slightly different and we worked again. We, we continued to work on being a team and a tribe because in London schools, lots of children move around. So probably six or seven kids had left and I had six new ones. So, um, and then at the end of year four, I, I moved out of London and in, in the UK, children leave primary school in year six so or age of 10, 11. And I'd promised them that I would return for their leaving assembly. They have this big assembly where they graduate. And so two years later, I came back into London just to attend their leave assembly because I was part of their tribe and I'd, I'd made that promise. And they, that class stay in my mind when I think about tribal classrooms because we went on a huge journey. It was hard work, but there was a real sense of belonging as part of that journey. And yeah, they're... they're a class I think fondly of now. <laughs> Adrian, this is this is wonderful. I, I'm going to ask you a, a curveball question, mm. all right, uh, which relates very much to everything we've been talking about and ties us back to the beginning of our conversation as a way to conclude this conversation, which is um, how has establishing a tribe-based or tribal classroom, um, you, I've always looked at the teacher-student dynamic as uh, reciprocal and um, not it's not just the teacher who is imparting information, explaining the rules and regulations, maintaining oversight of the classroom, blah, blah, blah. Uh, a teacher also can, if open to it, be the recipient of a lot of information that helps that teacher to grow. 
um, in a sense, every student holds a mirror up to what we do every day. Mm. Like the students are watching. And I'm just curious for you, and you might want to think for a second about this, because um, the way we began this conversation was really looking at your story. And you had a real uh, kind of um, hero's journey, in a sense, uh, of what brought you into the classroom, this this epiphany that I want to leave the music industry, which could make me a lot of money and could be kind of this um, very, very... Uh, statusy kind of job um but with that except the kind of loneliness that comes to the job that's really about chasing money in a sense the maybe dullness of of just looking at spreadsheets and budgeting and all that stuff and i want to be in the classroom i want to do something generative mm-hmm. i want to do something that's that's giving and that's it's da-da-da. so that was your, your your moment i think of of moving into the classroom but what do the kids give back to you in a tribal classroom is my question like it, how did they how did you find it as, in a sense, a uh, an environment that helped you get from that period of loneliness, darkness, toward your flourishing life that you're yeah. leading today? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I, I guess when you are creating a tribal classroom, like as as the teacher, you are a part of that tribe and so um they as part of my tribe gave me a really strong sense of meaning and purpose so like i was there to in in a sense be the tribal leader um but equally when when you work on that connection that sense of belonging um you know it's all it's what some people call micro moments that you get you get so many micro positive micro moments from your your tribe such as you know kids coming up to you at playtime uh you know you're out on playground duty and just you know coming up to have a conversation and just tell you about their day because they have that sense of connection it's about a child at the end of your lesson coming up to you saying mr bethian i really enjoyed that lesson thank you you know it's all of those little micro moments that i think come from creating a sense of tribe and that you know i get a sense of belonging to team Picasso and whatever other team I've created as much as they get a sense of belonging. Like every day when tribal classrooms are like at the forefront of your mind, your purpose, your mission is extremely and abundantly clear. Like why I'm here. Like, yes, I'm here to, to teach, you know, a bit of Shakespeare and a bit of equivalent fractions and all of that. But actually I am here to connect with you, for you to connect with me, and we're going to go on this learning journey together. Um, so yeah, it's definitely reciprocal. Um, and whereas in the music industry, yeah, I was part of a team, as in I was on a team, but we all worked at separate desks and we all had lunch separately. And but in the classroom, it is visceral. When you've worked hard at creating a tribal classroom, it is really visceral. The feeling is like this is this is my class this is my tribe this is where i'm meant to be and yeah it's it's um yeah that 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 sense of purpose is just really clear and it, it's something that i completely lacked in in music and i guess i didn't realize it on the t- at the time because the job was pleasurable so i enjoyed it uh you know i got to have nice lunches and I got to have nice meetings at music publishers and things like that but actually 
pleasure can only take you so far. And I think that deeper sense of meaning and purpose, which ultimately I think comes from connection, um, is, is what tribal classrooms give you. Um, so you have the strong sense of purpose and also because you're a tribe and you're having fun learning, you get the pleasure as well. So you get that, that nice balance of pleasure and purpose. Adrian, an, un- an unexpected uh, uh, takeaway from this conversation is my hope that there are people listening to this episode who are mid-career thinking about changing careers, maybe thinking about going into the classroom themselves. And the story like Adrian's, really this idea of you can make this change. And if your heart and if your if your if your spirit is motivating you toward moving into a school environment, Adrian's a great example. Listen to this again and you'll see, you know, just you'll 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 see how Adrian's a great example of somebody who had a career going and made this change and absolutely flourished. And that could be any of you listening too. I want to thank you very, very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's been great. Likewise. Cheers. And enjoy your tea. (laughs)